Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. So this week I want to highlight one of our sponsors, Pendo, who has an upcoming conference, Pendemonium. So Pendemonium is a two-day conference for innovators, collaborators, and anyone product-obsessed. You'll have an opportunity there to engage with remarkable product leaders and dig into topics around product-led growth, design, and success. It's coming up soon, September 10th and 11th in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'll be there. You should be too. To learn more, Google Pendemonium 2019 or visit Pendo at www.pendo.io. So this week on Product Love, I sat down and talked with Patrick Campbell of ProfitWell. ProfitWell is a subscription software that helps you achieve faster reoccurring revenue growth. So as you can imagine, we talked about pricing and pricing pages specifically. So think about the incredible importance your pricing page has. When someone comes to your website with an intent to purchase, your pricing page is going to be the biggest factor in that conversion. So we talked about what should be on it. Patrick believes every pricing page needs to reiterate the core value your product has. It must remind prospects how your product will positively impact their day-to-day, and it has to be relatable to them in their individual circumstances. So when you're highlighting the different pricing tiers, it's important that you add if it's good for growing businesses, small companies, enterprises, different segments, So really personalize your pricing in a way that's important to your market in the different tiers of your market you sell into. And then it's really important to add social proof to that. You should have your pricing page link out to case studies. Does it really do a good job of linking to information or having information that defines and underlines the value prop? So I'm interested in knowing what you think. What else do you think needs to be on a pricing page? And what are some companies that have a great pricing page? Let me know at ebodic at pendo.io or reach out to me on ebodic at Twitter. Well, welcome over to product. Today I am here with Patrick Campbell. He is from a company that's really cool called ProfitWell. Well, why don't you give us a little overview to kick this off, Patrick, of your background? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Uh, big fan of the Pendo branding. I actually am not wearing my Pendo socks today but I do wear my Pendo socks pretty consistently. So excited to chat here. In terms of, you know, kind of personal background, my background's in in econometrics and math. I come from like a small dairy town in the middle of Wisconsin, then went to school in Illinois, moved out to Boston about 10 years ago. And, you know, after a little bit of a stint um, in DC, working in the US intelligence community, then moved up here, like I mentioned, to work at Google in the Cambridge, Massachusetts office. And then jumped out and started ProfitWell about six, seven years ago. And so it's been a fun ride. I think that our whole thing is basically we help subscription companies with the hard parts of growth. So, you know, we have this free subscription financial metrics product that you can plug into your billing system, you know, Stripe, Braintree, Zorro, whatever you're using, and basically get access to your free subscription financial metrics. And then the way we make money is we, you know, show people problems and opportunities, and then we help them with their pricing through a product we have called Price Intelligently, or through, or by lowering their churn through a product called Retain. And we have a couple of other products, but our whole thing is using that data 
and kind of targeting, you know, where, where things need to get fixed and then building products to, to basically fix those things. Now you're a bootstrap company, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So the kind of back of the baseball card, you know, details is we're a bootstrap company out of Boston. We have uh, about 80 people right now. Most of them are in Boston. We also have a small office in Rosario, Argentina. And we actually have our, our first team member out in Salt Lake City. We're opening up a Salt Lake City office this year. And I think from a revenue perspective, you know, we have, we're over 10 million ARR at this point. We have in addition to that, we have about, depending on how you measure it, about 20% of the entire subscription world basically using our free product, which is pretty cool. And I don't know, we're a dog-friendly office. I guess that's always a fun fun thing to throw in the back of the baseball card there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have a wonderful mutt named Waldo. So I, I'm Oh, man. I got Sloan. Sloan is, it's funny how dogs are, right? You, like, they're so vulnerable and so, like, they rely on you and so... Like you almost miss them more than you miss humans sometimes, which is kind of scary depending on how you look at it. Absolutely. So talk to me, you know, take me back to the early days to talk about the reality of bootstrapping a company in SaaS. And if you go back there, what's one piece of advice that's helped you or that you would give to others? Yeah, it's a great question. So starting the company was, you know, bootstrapping. I, I joke that, you know, we didn't take on funding, but we, it doesn't mean we didn't pay anything. I used to be a hundred pounds lighter over the past seven years here. And I'm not going to blame the company completely, but it definitely was a a contributing factor. But in the beginning, I mean, it's interesting because it's now with some hindsight, I think that it's very similar to starting a, you know, a a venture backed company or an angel backed company in the early days, in the sense that you're still kind of frantic, you're still kind of reactive. You're trying at least, you know, if you're in the early days of a new space and and especially if you're a first time founder like I was just trying to breathe life into something and breathe momentum into something that just hasn't existed yet, which is so, so hard. And I think with, with bootstrapping in particular, what I learned is that there were two really big advantages and these were all in hindsight. I didn't have the foresight to know these were going to be the advantages. So there might be some like post hoc rationalization here, but one really, really big advantage is that we actually went slower in the early days than probably we would have with funding. And I think that was actually a really good thing, particularly for our space. So our space, you know, we started off in the pricing space, which isn't really well-defined, and then kind of moving into the general subscription software space where it was defined, but it's moving quickly, but it's not necessarily moving like very quickly from a growth of logos perspective. And so it was one of those things where we had enough time to basically see where the market was going. And when we made mistakes, we weren't like running quickly into a brick wall. Like we were still running into a brick wall, but it wasn't like we were, you know, going a hundred miles an hour into the brick wall. And I think that really helped us that like lack of speed almost because we didn't like knowing what I know now, like we didn't know anything about what we should have known in the early days. And the other big thing I think that was really helpful from bootstrapping was, you know, really prioritizing your decisions. I think that, you know, I've seen a lot of like first time founders at this point, um, my peers, you know, people we worked with, et cetera. And they like, when you're venture backed and you don't know what you're doing, you go, you know, you, you don't prioritize, you spend money on all types of different things. You spend your time on all different things. And I think for us, we had to go after really high leverage pieces and the bootstrapping made us really, really good at being almost too thoughtful sometimes about what is the leverage that we're going to get out of, you know, an investment of time or an investment of money. And we've had to kind of unlearn some of those aspects just as we started to scale because sometimes, you know, overthinking or over leveraging things is, is not good for scale. And so it's been, been quite a journey since the beginning. 
Yeah, tell me a little bit more about how bootstrapping affected specifically product management within ProfitWell. Yeah, that's kind of funny because we didn't really have product management in the beginning, to be frank. Uh, product management, I mean, that's kind of how it starts sometimes. You kind of do most of the product managing from the front line, which you know is, is super tough sometimes. And so for us, what it did for us is I think that traditionally what ends up happening, or it's not traditional because there's a lot of different paths up the mountain here, but normally what ends up happening on the product side is you do research, you build something, you iterate, you ship, and you kind of do this in this like flywheel that maybe is super tight, but you might not necessarily have enough users or enough you know, paying users, depending on what you're trying to build in order to rationalize if something is working and something's not. So you end up building a lot of product. On the extreme, you know, we actually acquired a, you know, it was an acquire of a company really early on where basically their answer to everything was build stuff, build more stuff, build more stuff, talk to customers, build more stuff. They weren't really working on the other aspects of the business. And so for us, the effect was, is we were seeking funding in some way from our customers. And so we basically started taking on projects that we probably sh- would not have done if we were you know, venture-backed to get paid. And then we essentially got paid to do our customer development. So rather than going, you know, we had this software product that we were you know, trying to sell. And rather than you know, when someone came to us and said, hey, like, I really like the output. I really like the software. Do you mind helping us get the data or interpret the data, et cetera? We didn't go, oh, I'm sorry. VCs tell us that services are bad. We went, yeah, yeah, sure. How much are you going to pay us for this? And we didn't say it quite like that, but that's pretty much what we said. And they were, you know, they gave a pretty large sum and we were like, oh, okay, this is different. So it actually helped us one kind of rationalize, but really just kind of learn directly from our customers, which was really great. And then when we brought on our, our more formal product organization with the hiring of our CPO, um, my business partner, Facundo, basically what ended up happening, and it was really kind of cool, is that because we were resource constrained, like all early stage companies, we essentially were very, very ruthless about our prioritization. Probably not as much as we should have been, but it was like, where are we going to put our time? Where are we going to put our effort? And we were really, really long-term focused on, on how we were thinking about that because we were really worried that we didn't have enough time just to like throw away code or throw away features. That's actually what ironically led to the, the free product, even though you know we were bootstrapped, which you normally don't see. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's unusual to see in a bootstrap company, a, a free product, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you see it with some, you know, bootstrap companies. I think, I don't think Notion has actually taken investment. I, I, I'm not sure. I believe they're one that, that's definitely done well. And there's a couple other free products out there. But normally, like when you're, you know, bootstrapped, you're just so focused on money because you don't have any funding, right? And so the idea of doing something for free just doesn't make sense, even though like long term, it might make a lot of sense. And so for us, freemium was was this, you know, gateway of, hey, we have these constraints in our market. You know, for example, there's not a lot of logos in, in the world of subscriptions in the world of SaaS. You know, it's only growing by, you know, three, four percent per year. But the revenue on those logos is growing, you know, nearly exponentially. And so we were like, well, we need to be a multi-product company. We need to have high LTV per customer to build, you know, a very large business. And that's what we intended to do. And so that just kind of turned everything into a place of, oh, we do need this free product because it's going to help us, you know, with a network effect on our data algorithms. It's going to help us with distribution. It's going to help us, you know, with our brand overall. And that's kind of the mini case study on on why we went with a free product early on, just because we were doing it for the long term. Yeah, let's talk about pricing right now. Let's jump back to freemium maybe a little bit later. So sure. on pricing, who should own pricing? Yeah, it's a great question. I can tell you who shouldn't own it. 
I'm, I'm painting a pretty broad brush with this, but, and there are exceptions, but normally what you want to do is you want a pricing committee where it's basically made up of, you know, someone who, or someone who's representative from product, from marketing, from sales and from finance. And in much larger companies, you know, fortune 500 type companies, you know, kind of these pricing committees look a little bit like the United Nations where there's just tons of different representatives from different places. But those are the four main folks. Now, who should be kind of the decision maker there? Typically, it's someone in product or someone in marketing, just because they're typically closer to the customer, depending on how you know the company is structured and kind of the roles are structured. The folks who probably shouldn't be in charge are, are probably the head of sales or the head of finance. And the reason for that, and again, there are exceptions, is that sales is normally not well aligned to the incentive structure of changing pricing consistently. And finance is really, really good at kind of Excel engineering the pricing model, but they're not so good at basically um, the inputs, the, the marketing assumptions or the customer assumptions that go into those. But that's, that's kind of the core group. And, and the reason for that is if you think about pricing, you know, it's that exchange rate on the value that you're providing. So you've provided value no matter what you're selling, who you're selling to, and you're trying to find like, what's the packaging, what's the positioning, what's you know the pricing. And all four of those members or those main parts of the business, they all have really, really good input and really good feedback. Or at the very least, if they don't have good feedback, they're going to be in a position where they're going to have to evangelize or they're going to have to you know disagree and commit or at least agree and commit to that pricing change. So you want to make sure that those voices are heard and ultimately you, know, you can keep the momentum going with different pricing changes. So talk to me about guidance you give to product managers or product people in general that don't have pricing expertise. Yeah, I think the biggest thing you got to keep in mind is, or maybe if I back up a second, like people look at pricing as this very sensitive, very, it's kind of like the, I can't remember the old quote, but it's kind of like, you know, when you go to dinner, never talk about sex, religion, politics, or pricing. That's kind of how I feel like it is because it's like money, right? And I think that what ends up happening is, is people get overly sensitive to it. They make it a bigger deal than it should be. Not that it isn't a big deal, but they kind of put it on a pedestal and they're like, well, we can't change it. And then they just paralyze themselves with either analysis and or inaction from doing anything. So I think the big thing you got to think about with pricing is that very similar to product development, marketing development, sales development, it's the same process or it's the same types of frameworks that you can apply to your pricing strategy. It just has a little bit more sensitivity on you know, maybe you need to collect a little bit more data before you implement something that's going to affect a lot of people. Or maybe you need to, you know, be a little bit more sensitive about, hey, we want to do this change, but we want to make sure that it's okay in the context of this other change. That central nature of pricing is a little bit of a blessing and a curse because it's a blessing because small changes can actually bring a ton of revenue, but you also have something that's so, so sensitive. So if I was, you know, making a recommendation to someone on like what they could do to get started or what they can focus on, I'd really go deep into, you know, make sure you set up the committee, basically set up like a data collection and testing process, which is super, super basic and really make sure you're doing customer development and customer research. Like you would be amazed and, and we have the data to, to show this, like you'd be amazed at the number of product and marketing organizations and just companies in general that aren't doing any customer research. And that's really where your pricing data needs to come from. Understanding your customers, understanding what they value, what they don't value and kind of all of the above. And so that's a really, really big thing. Don't put it on a pedestal, approach it like a same, similar framework, similar process, and just go to that customer and collect data from them to, to really understand where you should go. So talk to me a little bit more about that. 
Talk to me about, you know, how they should approach that, how many customers they should talk to, what data should they collect, and how they organize that. Yeah, so I think that there's, you know, if you think about any pricing page, and it's a little bit hard to like show it on a podcast or audio podcast, obviously, but the traditional kind of SaaS or subscription, you know, pricing page, because I think a lot of folks here are either familiar with those or they've come across those, you know, you have two axes, right? So you have this grid and on the x-axis, you have a bunch of different features, differentiated features, these types of things. And on the y-axis, you basically have price points. And so you have three tiers, they have different feature structures, and then you have price points for each tiers. So if you think about it as that grid, there's basically two types of data you want to collect. You want to collect first, what are the relative values of those different features two different customer targets. So if I'm going out and I'm you know, talking to product leaders who are either champions or the decision makers on buying Pendo, for instance, like what I might do is I want to understand, well, do you value NPS more than you value engagement data? Do you value this aspect versus this aspect and so on and so forth? And then I'm going to segment, you know, frankly, the hell out of that data to figure out okay, so as companies get larger, they start to care more and more about these pieces of the product. As they you know, get more sophisticated, they tend to care less about this part of the product or you know, things like if they're using HubSpot, they really care about this versus if they're using Marketo, they really care about that. So that's where like, really the value and the data comes from segmentation. But I really want to understand which personas, which profiles of buyers care about which type of offerings and which types of features. Now, on the other end, from a willingness to pay perspective, I want to go out and, and to figure out like where the willingness to pay is for the product or for an aspect of the product or those types of things. Then I'm going to basically collect willingness to pay data, which there's a couple of ways to do it. But what I highly recommend, especially if you're doing this for the first time, is to basically ask ranged questions. So things like, at what point is this way too expensive that you would never consider purchasing it? At what point is it a really good deal that you'll purchase today? The reason those questions tend to work is because one, you're taking advantage of how people think about value. So we all think about value as a spectrum. Like I know that this computer is worth more than you know this bottle of water that's sitting in front of me because I've used them before, I've purchased them before, one's more of a commodity, one isn't. But you're also, the other cool thing about this is the ranges allow you to account for, well, if I just ask someone point blank, it's a hard question for them to answer. But in addition to that, I don't know if it's an overestimate, an underestimate, I don't know what that really looks like. And then again, when I start collecting this data, I'm going to you know, massage it, apply some models to it, which I certainly can get into, but also can you know, share some resources after the, after the podcast today. But basically, I want to segment the heck out of that data again, mainly because I'm trying to find those margins of opportunities basically that I can take advantage of, like this particular user who really cares about X or you know, this particular user who's willing to pay a lot more, essentially. Hmm, that's interesting. So... What do you find when you're talking to people, what do you find they typically get wrong? You know, what's funny is it's like everything I just described, like I know it sounds complicated or maybe it doesn't. Like, I don't think it should sound complicated, but the issue is, is that most people, they're not even talking to their customers. And I know I'm belaboring that point already because I already brought it up, but it's like just the concept of going to your users or your customer base or your target customers who have never heard of you and asking some of these questions and doing your research that's something that like very few companies are doing. They're, they're very few are even doing it for their product and their user experience, let alone something like 
that's like their pricing. And so I think that's a really big thing is, is we're not talking to our customers enough. We're not doing our research. And, and we have the data that shows those product organizations, those companies that are doing their customer development, their customer research are growing at a far outpaced number than those who are just basically shooting from the hip and hoping they can logic their way into building or, you know, pricing the right product to the right customer base. Now, if you want to talk more tactically, like what are some big mistakes that people are making? I think one really big thing that people are, are doing is they're not using what's called a value metric. So how you charge is very, very important. So Salesforce, you know, charges on a per user basis, for instance, that per user model is a really good scaled value metric for Salesforce, for Pendo or for, you know, we talked about Advision before the call or, you know, talking about, you know, something like ProfitWell Retain. These models or these value metrics you're going to use are going to be different. So ProfitWell Retain, we charge based on, you know, amount of money we recover for you, whereas you guys might be charging based on, you know, volume of users or, or volume in some particular way. And so, I think that's a really, really big thing because what we found in the data is that if you get everything else wrong about your pricing, but you get your value metric right, you'll typically be in a pretty good place in the long term and it basically makes up for a lot of that pain, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So I like that concept of value metric and value metric based pricing. What should people be thinking about as they try to figure that out? I think the way to think about this, the good mental model is, Whatever your product is, and it could be a B2C product, B2B, like nonprofit, doesn't really matter what it is. Think about what is the ultimate value that you're providing that customer? Like if you could truly measure the value you're providing, what would that be? And so for a B2B product, a lot of times it's like the amount of money we bring you, the amount of costs we save you. Like that's the ultimate thing you're doing, whether it's indirectly or directly. For a B2C product, it might be the amount of like joy you bring them, which is really, really hard to quantify, but that's ultimately what your value metric is. Now, for some companies, that's where the whole analysis ends because you know, hey, we can, like for ProfitWell Retain, we can measure exactly how much money we're making that customer and we can charge based on the amount of money that we're making them with something like a mobile app that's a game that brings me joy. It's a little bit harder to obviously measure that, like I said. And so... Once you have that, whether whatever your product is, then try to take one step back from that value and try to find a proxy. So a good example is something like HubSpot, right? So HubSpot, they basically make you more money through marketing stuff, right? There's a bunch of different marketing things they do. Well, it's hard when I make money off of a blog post to understand, well, did HubSpot do 30% of that work, 50% of that work, whatever it is. And so a good proxy for the amount of money that they make you is something like contacts, right? So the more contacts I have, presumably the more money I'm making, and therefore I'm more than willing to pay HubSpot more for that value that they're bringing me through those contacts. But essentially that's the mental model to kind of think through. And then in some cases there's definitely just market constraints. So in like sales tools, like I mentioned Salesforce, per user pricing is just so ingrained that that's what you probably have to use. Now, in reality, per user pricing for most products is terrible, mainly because that's not really where the value is being found. If you think about, you know, an analytics tool, a lot of times when that like if one user logs in and the other user can share their login and they get the same value, it's probably not a really good value metric. But it's one of those things that, you know, you have to kind of think about that value ultimately that you're providing and then take those steps back. 
So going back to the research a little bit, when you're talking to people and you're doing this research, are there any specific questions you ask prospects to help you determine like the upper and lower bounds of pricing? Yeah, totally. So I alluded to these before, but basically those ranged questions work really well. Now, if I'm interviewing you, like you and I are just talking on this Zoom here and we're going to talk through, hey, like I'm doing some research and I might go, you know, cool. We just talked about the products. This is cool. Like you, you could provide a ton of feedback. You know, we're working on our pricing and I just got out of curiosity based on everything you've seen in, in your current situation. I know this is a hard question to answer, but at what point is this going to be way too expensive per month that you're just not going to return my calls? You're not going to want to do the beta. And they'll, you know, fumble around and give me an answer. And then I'll follow that up with, okay, cool. And at what price is this like such a good deal that you'll sign today, essentially? And that's kind of the stuff that really, really helps those ranges. Now, if I'm doing this more scalably through like more market research, I'm going to add a couple of extra questions that I'm going to ask at what point is it getting expensive, but you'd still consider purchasing it. And then I'm going to ask something like, at what point is it way too cheap that you question the quality of the product? Because when it comes to software, a lot of times we don't have a good grasp of the fact that just because you lower the price doesn't mean you increase demand. There's plenty of software out there that you decrease the price and people are like, wait a minute, you're claiming you can do all of these things for five bucks a month. There's something fishy here. The product isn't as good. There's something going on. But those are like the key questions. And what's cool is depending on your math abilities, and even if you don't have great math abilities. You can do some cool stuff in spreadsheets with some kind of off-the-shelf algorithms. And then if you want, you can make this much more complicated to calculate, you know, elasticity of demand and things like that. I like that. And I think there's there's something there that a lot of people don't realize is that you can push a price down so low that people look at it and are like, I, I don't think you can actually deliver what you're saying because the price is so low, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what's scary. I think we have plenty of examples of like people who essentially double their price, you know, or triple their price. And not only do they obviously increase their average revenue per account or per user, but they increase their conversion because all of a sudden, you know, they either stay in the same market and people take them more seriously, or they kind of bump up into the next echelon of the market, like going up market. And it's just a higher willingness to pay in that market. And I think that's why it's so important to look at just the baseline willingness to pay if you've only used competitive data and you've just only used you getting in a conference room with some of the people that work there and arguing about what the price should be and that's it, you're losing out on a tremendous amount of revenue and growth that comes from the pricing lever. And that's sadly, you know, you see this all the time where people haven't you know, updated their pricing in three years. Like that's the average right now in terms of how often people update their pricing when in reality, folks who are updating their pricing, and this isn't raising their pricing necessarily, but doing just basic updates to their pricing, you know, every six to nine months are seeing basically ARPU gains over, you know, five years to be, you know, 150% of when they started. So that's a really, really big thing you got to keep in mind that growth comes a lot from pricing. And if you're not doing anything about it, you've lost that growth lever. And it's not to say you're, you're going to spend just as much time on pricing as you spend on, you know, acquiring customers, but it is to say that, spending a little bit more time than nothing is probably going to give you some really, really good gains. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit more. How should companies think about pricing as they grow and can they use pricing as a differentiator in the marketplace? And maybe those are two separate questions. Yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, I think they're a little bit different, but I think it's, I think they kind of go hand in hand or they're cousins of each other, if that makes sense. I think the big thing is, is in the early days, I think, 
the number one thing to figure out has nothing to do with the price point. It has to do with basically the value metric that we talked about. Like in the early days, that's the number one thing you should be thinking about. And the reason it's harder than, than you might think is because a lot of people have to think about what actually makes their product valuable. What's the outcome that they're driving to for that customer that's going to make them great? And it's a really hard question to answer in the early days because you're trying to like run around and do payroll and do all these other things. And so that's the number one thing. I think as you grow then, then it becomes about optimizing that packaging. Then it becomes optimizing about the actual price point. Then it becomes, you know, making sure you're differentiating so you have some good pricing for enterprise, good pricing on the low end. Then it becomes, oh, you're multi-product now. You know, once you're you know, over 100 million, like it's rare to have a company over 100 million in annual revenue that doesn't have multiple products or isn't working on multiple products just because, you know, that that's an echelon of growth. And then everything becomes complicated because you got add-ons, you have multiple products, you have cross-sells, upsells, all these different things. And so that's kind of the, you know, I, I didn't put clear lines of demarcation there, but that's kind of the, the flow that typically happens when you're thinking about pricing. And I would say in the early days, up to, let's say, 50 million, it should be one per like one person in addition to the pricing committee, it should be 20% of their job. One day a week, that's what they should be thinking about. And maybe it's not actually one day a week. Maybe it's like a week out of the quarter or something like that. But it's one of those things that, you know, you want that constant iteration because that's what's going to give you the gains. But I would say in addition to that, I think it's, you know, once you reach about 7,500 million, you probably should have at least one person full-time. And maybe they're not just full-time to, to pricing, but they're at least full-time to research. And that's, that's a pretty big thing. Now, is pricing or can pricing be a, a growth differentiator? I, I absolutely think so. I think you're seeing this with a number of different companies. I think HubSpot just launched today basically free email marketing we launched a free subscription financial metrics product. Now, freemium is very different than the pricing because freemium is an acquisition model. It's not a revenue model, but using $0 as a differentiator actually works really, really well in a lot of cases as long as you're executing freemium in the right way. But other ways people use you know, price really well from a differentiation standpoint is, let's just say you don't have freemium, you have you know, not even that competitive of a market, but just say you have some competitors, simply just adding a very premium tier on your pricing page that they don't have, all of a sudden just kind of elevates you know, the premiumness of your product, even if you have the exact same price that they have for you know, essentially the core product. And so there's a lot of different things that you can use there, but ultimately you have three big growth levers in a subscription business, acquiring customers, monetizing customers, retaining customers. And as I've been kind of beating the drum the whole time here, those last two are, are just very, very not used as much as they should be. So, and I want to jump to freemium in a second, but one more question first. No worries. Yeah, yeah. Two-part question. We had talked and you hinted at and, and touched on a little bit companies' pricing pages, right? So what should be on a company pricing page and what company do you think has great one? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. There's so like, we could talk for an hour on just on that. So I think that a really great pricing page, I think that like, and I, I hate referencing them, not because it's not true, but because it's kind of like referencing Apple, like everyone kind of does it, but they were pretty unique in the market and the company Slack. I think Slack's pricing page is actually really, really good. I think their model is, is really, really good. I think another company that does really well with this is Big Commerce. And, and, and the things that they do that, that work really, really well, and these aren't even like the tactical things about the pricing strategy, more about the, you know, the actual page is when someone comes to your page, let's say that a purchasing decision, right? Everything in your business, sales, marketing, whatever it is, is used to drive someone to that page or that point of conversion or to justify the, the price or the product or whatever you're offering them, Right. 
And so it's one of those things where that page is, is pretty crucial. Now, when I come to that page, I might be coming from many different funnels. I talked to a salesperson. Maybe I didn't talk to a salesperson. I talked to a support person. Maybe I got a referral from someone. Maybe I read a blog post. Maybe I did a bunch of different things. But when I come to that page, it should be relatively easy to understand what is the outcome that you're going to give me as a potential customer, as a customer. You'd be amazed at the number of people where they have no idea what they're looking at when they go to a pricing page and they're not really sure what the product like does. And it's not the job of the pricing page to do all of that heavy lifting, but it's the job of the pricing page to reiterate that core outcome. You got to tell me what tier is for me or what plan is for me. And this is super simple. Add like some little line underneath the tier name, best for small businesses best for those who are growing, best for the enterprise. Just those basics help me identify where I should be. And then give me that social proof. I think that what we found is value propositions and you know different levels of case studies, whether it's a full case study, just a customer ribbon, those types of things, they actually increase willingness to pay by a good you know, 15, 20%, depending on how you execute it. So those are some really, really important things to kind of think about. And ultimately, like you got to take a step back and make sure that people can understand what they're getting. We've all been on pricing pages where it's just endless scrolls of check marks. I think Salesforce's pricing page is one of the worst pricing pages I've ever seen just because you need to download a PDF that has like a map key to understand what you get in each like tier. And this is why like, you know, most people, they come from referrals or they come from repeat purchases or they come from like a sales situation rather than, oh, cool, like I'm going to actually go to this pricing page and make a decision from it. So those are three really, really big factors to kind of keep in mind, like when you're doing basically your pricing page either for the first time or the, you know, hundredth variation. Thanks. That was great. That was very informative. So let's, let's jump to the topic we've avoided a little bit so far. Talk to me about freemium. Yeah, you must have caught me on a day where I've been talking about it because I guess I'm bringing it up left and right before. So yeah, so freemium, I mean, like I said, acquisition model, it's not a, a revenue model. A lot of people get it mistaken with, you know, hey, this is part of my pricing. It affects your pricing and it's tangential, but it's not, you know, it shouldn't be like part of the pricing. It should really be a part of your product strategy. And the way that, you know, we've found in studying freemium that you should think about it is it's very, very much like a premium ebook. Like that's the mental model through which you should be thinking like, Hey, this is a, you know, a top of the funnel driver essentially where we can nurture those particular leads into perpetuity. And that's why I'm, you know, I, I used to be against freemium the data and just experience, you know, change my mind on it. I'm a huge fan. I think most companies will have something that's free in their business or in their kind of acquisition strategy at some point in their trajectory, mainly because there's just so much density in the market. And, you know, similar to an ebook 10 years ago, where if you wrote a good ebook, you were like a God, very similarly, it's going to be these free tools or freemium offerings that are going to be, you know, the biggest driver of the ability to nurture brands or nurture customers within your brand. So do you have advice to, you know, companies that have freemium but are struggling to convert those free customers or those people using their freemium version to paying prospects? Yeah, I think that, I think a big thing you got to think through when it comes to freemium is like, you can't just, and this is a big mistake that people make with freemium, is I, I say that, or I, I found, at least anecdotally, and the data does suggest this, that if you aren't a top 5% growth hacker, 
Like if you're not, if you don't have one of those people on your team, and I, I, I guess we're not using that phrase anymore, growth hack, I don't know. But if you don't have someone who is in the top 5% in the world at acquiring free users or someone who you think is going to be really effective or a, a really specific reason why you need that free user base, like if you're a you know, social network or something like that, you should not be starting with freemium. The best freemium plans we've seen, especially in the B2B world, they come into practice and come into play about five, eh, probably like three, four years into the business because that company that might be struggling where they have the free plan and they have struggled converting those users, they probably don't understand those customers enough or what makes someone go from that precipice to free to paid or a lead to a paying customer as much as they should. Now, once you know that, and once you have at least a good understanding, or you have the top 5% growth hacker, or you have a very serious need for a network effect, at that point, that's when you basically should be jumping into free because you're opening up that top of the funnel and you're opening up that acquisition. So if I was giving, you know, basically advice, I would say, I, I don't think you know about enough about your customer. You're getting distracted by these users. And unless there's a really good reason to, you know, continue doing it, I would probably not halt, but just don't optimize your, your freemium acquisition right now. And I would start focusing on like, why are those customers not converting, which there's a whole host of reasons that could be, they don't have the right you know, type of customer coming in. They're not providing enough value. They might be giving away too much value. They're not structuring their freemium to pay it properly. There's a whole, whole host of things that gets into that. Hmm, that's interesting. And don't you see a lot of startups starting with some kind of freemium offering or you contrarian to that then? I think that it depends on the business. I think that's a big thing. I think a lot of businesses, they start, you know, it's really funny is like, there's actually like really funny geographical lines with this. So what I mean by that is you have companies in Boston, like they rarely start with free because Boston is a little bit more of like a grittier B2B town. San Francisco, you see a lot of people starting with free. Europe, you see a lot less people starting with free because it's a little more grittier. It's a little bit harder to get funding. And so I actually don't have the stats on this. Like intuitively, I want to say that like, I don't see as many people scaling starting with free. You know, there's definitely really good examples, but I think, I think most people, if they are starting with free, they should be very, very careful about it based on the parameters. Cause I've seen plenty of people start with free and they just die. Not because the product wasn't good. It's just because they didn't think through it enough. So now I'm going to ask a, a question that's a little bit, maybe, maybe it requires some explanation. I hope but, so. <laughs> um, what do you think about large companies offering a free or a significantly discounted product to startups? And I think of this as something completely different than freemium right now. I think of this as instead of an acquisition model, actually a pricing tier. And I guess the first question is, do you agree that offering a free product or a significantly discount product to startups is really a pricing tier? And if so, what do you think of that? That's a really, really good question. I, so, so basically large companies offering like a product to startups. Like I, I think, you know, it's really funny. We thought about this today because we are our, our primary target. Like we have plenty of startups, like thousands of startups using our free products and plenty of them paying as well. But it's one of those things where we don't, that's not who we target for our paid products. And so we were talking about a startup program and we we're kind of like, you know, this isn't who we're targeting, right? So I, I think that to me, offering a significantly discounted price or a freemium offering for startups, like it's basically freemium, right? With, with a little bit of a twist because when I'm looking at HubSpot, for instance, and HubSpot, they have like 
I think they offer their startup tier for like a thousand dollars a year. And that would cost, you know, a minimum of $6,000 a year for that startup. What they're trying to do is they're just trying to get that startup hooked. And I think it's an effective strategy, but you have to think about the positioning. I think we as a company have trouble people clearly seeing that we target $10 million companies on up and our median, you know, target company is doing 75, 80 million, right? Because we have this free product, our product marketing isn't amazing, you know, et cetera. And so I think it's one of those things where we like, our whole decision was like, hey, this is a really good idea, but maybe we wait on it because, you know, we, we don't want to get the perception that we're like a startup focused company when we're trying to, you know, be grown ups wearing a suit and tie. I, I say that dramatically, obviously not for real. So yeah, I think there's a little bit of like personal opinion there, but I think it, I think it's a good strategy and it's, it's the whole hope is to get them hooked and they'll grow and, you know, love HubSpot or love, you know, whatever product it is. Cool. Well, I think this has been great. Why don't we finish up with a, a couple questions about you? So my, my first question there is, what's your favorite product? That's a great question. Oh, man. We, we've been making the switch to Notion lately. Notion is a, a note-taking and kind of like, it's a little bit all over the place. It's a wiki. It's a bunch of different fun things. So that's been that's been my favorite so far, mainly because I'm learning so much about it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with that one. I, I feel like that's a little boring because it's a note-taking tool. But uh, yeah, we've enjoyed it, which is great. Awesome. And a final question for you today. Three words to describe yourself. Ugh, this is tough because I'm describing myself. I don't know. I'm trying to think like what would people tell, what would people tell you about me? I mean, I think for me, um, I'm going to add some qualifiers. I think I, you know, everything I'm thinking of, I'm like, oh, that sounds too arrogant. So maybe I'm like, self-conscious. <laughs> Maybe that's a good, good word to describe me. I think, I, I think I'm very, I don't think passionate. I think obsessive is a better way to characterize it. Like I, I love what I do. I mean, I, I believe in work-life fit, not necessarily work-life balance. And like, you know, there's some weeks where I need to take it a little easier, but there's other weeks where I just like, I, like I've never been like, I don't want to go to work today. There's a lot of, uh, I don't want to deal with that today, but I've never, never not wanted to. And I think it's because I'm just very obsessed with problems, you know, and, and very obsessed with like, I want to fix this. I want to solve this. I want to build this, that type of thing. Um, and I think uh, analysis or analyzing, I think is another one. Um, it's hard for me, like when I deal with, you know, I think this is a blessing and a curse. I think I'm able to kind of think enough moves ahead or I'm able to analyze a problem, you know, problem, cause, solution, these types of things. But sometimes when there's, you know, problems that don't have like clear uh, ability to be analyzed, it can be a little debilitating. So I think those are three good ones. Self-conscious, which is obviously not positive, you know, analyzing and uh, obsessive. So that's me trying to be brutally honest without being arrogant, I guess. <laughs> love it. Love it. Well, thank you very much. This was great. Yeah. Awesome, man. Appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for everything. And keep crushing content and just keep being a, a great company that I think I know a lot of us are looking up to for, for doing the right things when it comes to product. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.